Welcome to In the Deep. I'm your host, Katherine Ingram. The following is excerpted from Dharma Dialogues held in June 2017 in Byron Bay, Australia. It's called False Identity. A few years ago, um, my identity was stolen. It's not like having your credit card stolen. This is your identity. They get everything. And they can basically go out in the world and pose as you. Open up bank accounts, buy a car, do anything, get in trouble with the law, etc. It takes a lot of effort, a lot of effort, and bureaucratic labyrinth reality to undo it. So for weeks, I would wake up in the morning and I would be forced to assert my identity because the other problem is it's very hard to prove your identity if someone else is saying they're you, how, how's, who's to know? So I would have to assert and prove my identity in various ways, even to stop what was going on, even to put freezes on all the credit uh, reports is also complicated. You ha- it takes a lot of paperwork and proving to get them to do that. Otherwise, they don't know that you're who you say you are. So you can imagine the irony was not lost on me, having to constantly prove my identity. <laughs> because mostly, I don't relate to myself as an identity (laughs) and I was struck with um, even just having to hear my name over and over all day that it became this kind of other entity of its own Um, I was struck in that phase and and in reflecting back on it how little interest I have in this presentation And I was remembering as I was sitting here, Poonjaji used to say, mind is I, the I thought. Mind, most of the activity of mind starts with or has somewhere embedded in the thought this word I, isn't it? It's just kind of part of the stream of the assertion, right? And I've noticed over the years, thankfully, that that impulse has faded, that that isn't so much what dominates the thinking. It's there, it's conditioned, but in terms of what I'm paying attention to in the thinking, let's say it that way, it's much more um, a free flow, it's much more letting the awareness notice you know, the color of the sky. By the way, the winter sky and the winter colors here, it's really amazing. It's really astonishing. And to really let the awareness be open, kind of floating, not so much referencing this identity 
right? Because as hard as that whole stolen identity phase was, I think some people live in a kind of version of that, asserting their identity. We've met them, haven't we? People who kind of barrage you with their I story, right? They prop it up and and you're, you're kind of astounded that that they are, not only that they're so interested in it, but that they think you would be. <laughs> but haven't we been cornered by people where they're just sort of, you know, uh, I'm trying to avoid the, avoid the word dumping, but that's what it's coming out, uh, just sort of dumping this presentation, this identity, this here I am flash, right? And you can imagine what it's like inside when that's the necessity, you know. Obviously, one can have compassion um, because that usually comes from insecurity, as we've all known. Um, but nevertheless, it's also difficult to endure. So this kind of this kind of fixation, I, me, what do I like, what do I think, what do I want, what did I do, what are they thinking about me, what am I going to be doing, the whole thing, as soon as it arises, there's trouble. <laughs> Either it's getting what it wants in the moment, but if there's any awareness whatsoever, you know that it's impermanent. So you're getting, you've got a little wind going on and yet there's this gnawing in the background that knows you're not going to get to keep it, whatever it is. Or you're not getting what you want and therefore you're grumbling about that, right? But it's all in this, in this propping up of the identity, It's hungry. And then it gets mad. <laughs> and I know well, because I lived a lot of my life that way. And I know the difference when that calms down, when that quiets, when you're perfectly happy to not have to present anything. So if anyone has anything you'd like to discuss on these kinds of matters, please feel free. I mean, how do you get that eye up? me and myself to calm down <laughs> well of course um, I always recommend becoming disinterested and noticing noticing the trouble that it causes to be com completely fixated now obviously you know we have to use it in a conventional way we have to use the eye we have to think about certain things we do have to plan all those things are part of living and part of 
getting around in life. I'm speaking, though, about the kind of continual thrust that often people live in. They wake up in the morning, the eye, be- the eye begins. They wake up into the identification and the, the needs of the, of the eye, the hunger of it. And then it just rolls on, and it drives you around, as I said last week, like a beast of burden. And it's that that becomes wearisome, and you begin to notice how wearying it is, and you begin to just be disinterested in that which is wearying to you, and going kind of nowhere, right? It's like a constant state of dissatisfaction. <laughs> of dissatisfaction, yeah, yes. Never really getting what you think you need. <laughs> yeah. And the, the difference is that, that in, the, in the simple awareness, whereby you're living in your senses, you know, I speak a lot about living in the senses, because it's an incredible privilege to experience your senses. You know, my friend Alan, who was just here visiting, last week his mother died. Um, she was 95, and obviously at 95 you're not expecting um, a long <coughs> life after that, but but it was still a little tiny bit sudden, um, in that she was fine and in a nursing, in a sort of a old age care home, and then suddenly she went to the hospital, and a few days later she was in hospice, and then she died just within a week of time, I'd say. Anyway, one of the things she had said to him recently was, because she had become more infirm and couldn't walk any longer, she said to him, You know, be sure to walk a lot. <laughs> You know, really enjoy walking, because once you can't walk anymore, it's really, you look back and realize what a privilege it is. Mm. I see that about all the senses and all of the ability. But, you know, to really enjoy, really experience yourself, just even something as simple as breathing, you know, breathing on your own, breathing freely. (coughs) (laughs) And... So when you're kind of living in the senses and when you're opening your eyes to the world and seeing and hearing and you hear a piece of music and it just kind of comes in, it's not being filtered through the eye story. I notice, for instance, in our time, I think it's a lot due to social media um, that people aren't really purely experiencing things. They're experiencing things in order to collect them to then show them in social media or show them to whoever or Twitter about it. Or There's a way in which everything is being filtered and mediated through the identification need, through the presentation of the identity Right? So that filtering, whereby you can't just simply look at a sunset and just drink it in without words that have to do with you, right? 
you're just experiencing purely like an animal experiences. That, I think, is something that's being lost a lot in our world. Like, there's this sense that you should be collecting it somehow, you know? So, where is that collecting? Where is that? What is that about? That collecting is also part of the aggrandizement of this I. It's this constant, it's the hunger of the I. And now that's not to say that obviously we share, we know that our friends love to hear from us and see what we're up to and that I'm not speaking about it on quite that level but but we all do know people who are just now recording their lives so my recommendation is to have these very direct experiences with reality with your own senses and not for some future time but for this You're not guaranteed any future time. Just for its own sake, you know, just this. And more and more, that is so refreshing. and It provides enough contentment in life that this hunger starts to dim. You really see the contrast. You really see the contrast when you're going along and you're just being and you're tasting and you're seeing and you have a sweet conversation and you look into the eyes of the guy who's serving you coffee. All of these moments that are rich, that don't require any big identity presentation, right? And then you notice the contrast when the presentation wants to arise and assert itself, when the identity wants to fluff its feathers out in the world, notice how it feels. Notice what it's doing, what it's feeling like inside. Yeah, there's so much stress when you have to present yourself to the world. It's just so stressful, really. You start worrying (laughs) months ahead. Exactly. (laughs) It is incredibly stressful. And like I said, it's stressful both ways. It's stressful if... People are admiring you because then you've got to kind of keep it up. And also, you know it's time limited. <laughs> it's, and then it's stressful if you're wanting that and they're not admiring you. Fame is fickle. <laughs> yes, it is. Very much so. Yeah. So you, you, you start to just easily discern And by the way, I'm really not saying, and I want to make clear, I'm not saying there's no place for the arising and the engagement with the word I and the functionality of it and the creative aspects. You know, you think, oh, I'd really like to write a book or whatever. That's different. There's certainly a place for all of that. It's this... It's this... um, you know, deeper obsession that is coming from some sense of lack and and highly conditioned, um, you know, by by life, parents, culture, etc., to value yourself based on certain things that the culture tells you that may not be how you need to be valuing yourself. When you are 
in much more ease in, inside yourself when you like you, when you're okay with you, and when you're then just experiencing just the simplicity of being, of life, just really simple, and that that becomes kind of delightful, then this need for the big assertion automatically fades. It doesn't have to go away entirely. It just has no more real power. It sometimes flares up. You know, sometimes flares up. I've often said I, <laughs> I'd rather go to a funeral than a party. And, and that's because generally at memorials or funerals, people are in their deeper waters. They're just, they're just the, the, the frequency that you're hanging out on is just so real and so tender, mostly. Whereas sometimes at so-called parties, and it, of course it depends on who's at the party and how big is the party and what's it about, but when sometimes at parties, there's a lot of ego presentation. And what that does is, it's not that I don't like them at the party, I don't like me at that party, because it'll, it'll tickle, it'll trigger my own ego material. I'll notice, you know, I'll notice some flutters of, you know, wanting to, you know, present myself, right? <laughs> I'm somebody. <laughs> it's that I don't, I don't particularly like, right? So if I'm at a, if I'm at a gathering where that's the, that's the um, way of being at the gathering if that's the kind of level of conversation, you sort of know it as soon as you walk into a place. Um, I notice an, a discomfort in myself starts to arise. I can, do, I can handle it for a while, you know, but after a while, it, it, it starts to be uncomfortable. It triggers all material in me. And so it's, it's the recognition of those kinds of things. Often people are presenting something in the hope of, really underneath it all, they want to be loved. And they may be doing something that's actually repelling the very thing they're after, right? Whereas if you're just kind of simple and easy, I don't mean be a simpleton, I mean just simple inside, you respond, you talk about things, you find common language, you listen well, you know, you're awake to what's going on in the space that you're sitting in with the person or walking. It's pleasant, you know. That's why people love to be with their dogs, you know. <laughs> yes. Have you ever had a time where you've given up on the world when you think it's just too bad and... Yeah, sometimes I think that's still, <laughs> yeah. It's a shame, really. I mean, it's such an amazing planet. It is. It's incredible. Um, incredible um, diversity of um, biology and of, uh, and of, and in the case of humans, uh, a lot of evolution has been pretty impressive, you know, um, 
a lot of art and music and knowledge and wisdom. And at the same time, there's been a, a destructive stream running along that is really shocking. And um, so, yes, sometimes I get very overwhelmed by the poignancy of it all, right? The poignancy of it all. It's really, uh, you know, heating up in every possible way. And, yeah. And then, too, I... Something in me also has learned to go into a kind of also, you know, that this is the way it rolls out, you know. So there's a, there's that as well, that merciful response that comes behind the resistance and the and the feelings of dread is this other merciful letting go of, okay, this is how it is here. It's also amazing. So so do you focus on the good stuff or do you fo- try and ignore the bad stuff? What do you do, though? It's like <laughs> I, even in one day I can swing from hearing something really bad and being really upset to, you know, seeing good things. And so you, you sort of constantly... Well, that's really good. That's a fluidity that's very uh, real very human so yes sometimes you're watching with tears in your eyes and then the next moment you're fluidly experiencing some some sort of joy and some sort of delight or pleasure at least or just simplicity um so that's that feels to me a very a very real um way of moving through the world I certainly am not impressed with or think it's very authentic people who are sort of in bliss. <laughs> like, just sort of blissful all the time. I kind of don't usually trust that. <laughs> I feel either there's some ignoring, uh, you know, a great deal of ignoring, or there's some pretense you know, but I, it's not not attractive to me. I like much more uh, people who see the real picture, you know, and who can still laugh but also cry sometimes. So we can't be happy all the time then. <laughs> Well, I don't know how you would pay, be paying attention in this world and be happy all the time, honestly. I mean, even if your personal life was very nice, then do you not have empathy for all the others who are miserably suffering? My point is that, um, again, without this constant self-referencing, even this story about having to be happy, <laughs> right? You get really very authentic in your own clear awareness, your own luminous awareness, your own presence. You get much more authentically living as that. So sometimes if it feels like tears are needed, you let tears come. They just, you don't have, you don't have a self-reference that says that that's no, not okay.
It's about living on a very big spectrum of experience, mm. you know. So sensitive people live on a wider spectrum, and that has its ups and downs. Um, you know, it mm. has it has because you're sensitive, you feel things easily. You're naturally empathic. You are sensing what's going on in the world or people, at least within your own uh, domain and community. Um, and that comes with heartache, loss, worry, concern, things that have to do with being an empath. Yeah. And then, too, the sensitivity also exists along the spectrum and up, up at the upper regions as well, where there's this incredible tenderness and a capacity to joy and the way that sensitive people just even do something simple like listening to a piece of music, you know, whereby the music is going through their entire system like mm -hmm. in a somatic way. Mm -hmm. You know, this is... Um, this has to do, and frankly, I just said this to someone I spoke to on the phone today who's going through some difficult time in feeling he's just, that the world is just too, too coarse for him. It's just too coarse for him to bear, you know? And I said, I can't tell you how many times I have heard this living in Dharma circles as I have for, you know, 45 years now. Uh, in, in Dharma circles since 1974 when I began, you know, Buddhist practice uh, early on, how people who are drawn to Dharma, I think, are by, it's self-selected that they're already sensitive. And getting into this and tuning into this frequency actually makes you more so. Hmm. But the good news is, just at the point you think that it's unbearable, you find that those those moments that refresh, you know, and that somehow not only being able to bear it comes, but also some other kind of strength comes as well, such that, you know, you find the right words to say or you find somehow a thing that makes it all, you know, endurable. And... Love arises unexpectedly. You know, Blake said, he who binds himself to a joy doth the winged life destroy. He who kisses the joy as it flies lives in eternity's sunrise. And it's like that. It's yeah. that, that one knows you kiss the joy as it flies. You kiss the sorrow as it flies as well, you know. So it's just, yeah. you, you know, it's, it's a very big spectrum that we live on. Mm -hmm. When you live in the sensitive way it does come with that and a lot of people in spiritual circles think they're going to be spared if they could only just get the right formula they're going to be spared the bad stuff and they'll just be on the bliss, <laughs> the bliss end of the spectrum <laughs> This has been In the Deep. You can find the entire list of In the Deep podcasts at katherineingram.com, where you can also book a private session by phone or Skype and see my schedule of upcoming events. If you're a regular listener, please consider making either a one-time or a recurring tax-deductible donation in any amount that is comfortable for you. Till next time. Mm -hmm.